I really like uh, gaming in my pajamas. The only time we get to do that is uh, Thrillicon. Or Gen Con? Sometimes, yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> Those 2 a.m. games back at the uh, very crowded Airbnb. Some people just wear their pajamas to Gen Con anyway. I thought that was cosplay. I was wrong. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous End-to-End Encrypted Zoom Call in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 251 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're revisiting our old series on player profiles to update them for online play. But first the party finds a trove in the Gates of Morning campaign, and later L catches criminals from a distance in the Character Creation Forge. So just a reminder, we are still finishing up Castle Amber over on the Godsfall Twitch at twitch.tv slash Godsfall. That is our playthrough of the old first edition 1983 classic D&D module Castle Amber. With uh, quite a few updates for 5e, although not as many updates as you might expect, actually, (laughs) given some of the wacky roles involved. And we are dangerously close to actually finishing this castle and either dying terribly or getting out, or I guess both. I think we're on our last fetch quest. Perfect. Uh, We have to fetch three or four more things. Yeah, (laughs) and then figure out where to take them, and we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, so that should be, I think, tomorrow night uh, on Twitch. At uh, twitch.tv slash godsfall. And Shane, uh, you've got some new news. I do. For the past few months, I have been working on a video game podcast with our friend Sally Tamarkin, and we are finally launching next Tuesday. Does that mean we can finally end this charade of a podcast? (laughs) Yes, it does. We're done. I'm out. (laughs) I made it to the big time. (laughs) Finally. I'm continuing my trend of only podcasting with people who have blue checks on Twitter. Nice. Tell us the heck about Co-op Mood, because as everyone knows, I know nothing about video games. Co-op Mood is our casually serious conversation about playing video games. It's Sally and I talking about what we're playing, um, sort of the game design and narrative design and the feeling we get from playing video games. Um, A lot of the stuff that we do is cooperative or at least co-oppetitive. A lot of it is team-based, right? So uh, we just kind of go through, talk about different genres of games, different games we're playing, different news that's going on in the uh, gaming world. We got a little bit of a wrench thrown in the works by COVID because <laughs> that kind of changed games a lot all of a sudden. Yeah, nobody's playing video games anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that medium is dead. <laughs> so it took us a little longer to launch than we expected. But uh, on Tuesday uh, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, you'll be able to find Co-op Mood. That's C-O-O-P Mood. You can listen along to our first episodes. We'll have two or three up on our launch day. Wait, your new podcast is on spotify and we're not on spotify yes (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) because that's that one's hosted on simplecast so it's very easy to put it on spotify (laughs) (laughs) look we'll figure it out one of these days (laughs) all right speaking of our podcast we had a bit of a change up a little bit of a switch up some new stuff last episode yeah it took us uh 250 episodes but for the first time we had a guest editor and 
he put in some sound effects. Yes. Thanks, Aram. Our guest editor, of course, Aram Vartian of God's Fall. Yes. So he gave us the God's Fall treatment, uh, a very light God's Fall treatment, but God's Fall treatment nonetheless. I mean, he didn't make the show good. Right. Well, like right. God's Fall. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can only do yeah. what you can do, right? You can't right. record us. <laughs> but he added some soundscaping, added some sound effects. And boy, did y'all notice. Uh, yeah, we heard a bunch of feedback. Uh, Discord sort of divided quickly into two camps and began attacking each other ruthlessly. Actually, they just kind of sat and were like, very politely, I would like to die on a hill. I feel strongly. That is that is attacking each other relentlessly in our Discord. <laughs> Everyone's so very nice. No, no, no. They just felt Except strongly the that they channel. wanted to die on hills. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think where we've landed on this, we heard a lot of feedback through Twitter, text messages, email, Discord. Uh, I think... Overall, it was like positive, um, but there were some very specific concerns around being distracting of our kind of main discussion segments. So we don't want that to happen. So we've asked Aram to keep the sound effects and soundscaping for the Gates of Morning recaps and not in the other discussion sections. What a wonderful compromise. We're so very good at this. I know. I, w- I actually honestly wish we had had that ability from the beginning when we first started these recaps because I thought that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, the capability existed, but you're right. We didn't have the ability. <laughs> Keep giving us your feedback if uh, if you like it, if you don't like it, if you miss it, whatever. Yeah, and hop into the Discord and, you know, pick a hill. Either one will be happy to provide you a nice warm place to sit and shoot arrows at the other hill, straight in the air. Nobody knows. All right, speaking of hills to die on, Ishan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? The Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in central Karnath, in the insular city of Vedakir, the party is chasing a killer. So now they have Ephraim's key charm in hand, and his body, his dead body, which is polymorphed into a dead dove. So the party heads to the Kandaric Bank, uh, where the vault is located. So just like any, uh, you know, small town bank branch, this is a small building though formidable, well-guarded, and our possession of the key charm grants us access to the inner vaults where uh, one of the Kandaric docents gives us some privacy. Right, they don't even care who you are. They don't need to see ID. You have a key charm, great. You can go into basically the room with the safe deposit boxes and you're not going to be able to do anything unless you can properly use the key, so they're not worried about it. Right. So Bramble returns Ephraim to his true form. They are here uh, by the vaults with a corpse. And after a bit of experimentation, a lot of waving around, a lot of like, you know, trying to figure out exactly how these vaults work, Warden figures out that you just need to take the key charm, stick it in the dead man's hand, and then wave his hand in front of the sensor uh, in in front of the vault. And it opens, revealing the contents. So we talked about this last time, but the vaults are like extra dimensional spaces, right? So you've got your little safe deposit box sized hole, but plenty of space for stuff. Right, and it doesn't necessarily need to be located in that particular bank location. It's, again, stored extra-dimensionally, and any Kundaric vault has access to the contents. So what is in this Kundaric vault, though, Ishan? There are several documents, because I love giving out documents. Uh-huh. First, there is a detailed journal of Ephraim's dreams, which are more bloody and terrible than the ones the party has experienced thus far. Uh, lots of cutting, lots of stabbing and pain. Second, there's a page of scribbled notes in Ephraim's hand that seem to detail a list of poisons and diseases that have no effect on him. Pale tincture, hemlock, oil of taggot, 
things like leprosy, gleet. Uh, you're not exactly sure how he figured out that these have no effect on him, but you assume they require a fair bit of experimentation. I, for one, am looking forward to getting rich and catching gout. <laughs> it's um communicable, I believe, I think, <laughs> through, uh, through bites. Oh, through bites? I thought it was <laughs> through money. <laughs> Terrible gout zombies. <laughs> so Ephraim also seems to have been trying to work out a phrase he heard in his dreams. The same one that the party members have begun to hear as well. Rikarza Star Halaf Motani Al El. And upon hearing this phrase read in its entirety out loud, Vesakad's head begins to throb, and the memories from his quarry spirit begin to surface and rise to consciousness. He realizes that the phrase itself is in Kor, the language of Dalkor and the quarry spirits that live there, one of whom shares his soul, and the majority of whom are terribly evil and are trying to hunt him down and kill him. And it means, The war still burns in your blood. So the party returns to House Davis, our uh, hostel, if you will, to rest and study Ephraim's documents, which include a map that pinpoints a location just east of the Jurasco compound where they all died on the day of mourning. The party is unsure what's going to be there now. Ephraim has also scrawled a haunting refrain that the party can't quite figure out, though Vesicod senses something very familiar about it. Dead husks walk, the brain tree and its branches more a family than ever. And we'll find out what that means next week. So this week, hey, we're revisiting, well, not just an old topic, an old series. We did an entire series on player personality types, and now we're talking about those types in online games, because that's pretty much what everyone's playing these days. In our first 102 episodes, we covered all six of the player types from Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering by Robin D. Laws. All 102 episodes were on player personality types. Six of those 102 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) So now it is time to update them for the world of online play in this kind of post-COVID environment. So we'll quickly go through each player type and then consider what's going to be different for them while playing online. Uh, And I want to shout out to Wine Nose in the TPT Discord for suggesting this sort of revisiting of the topic. Hey, if uh, you want to suggest topics yourself that we may cover, come on over to the Discord and pick a hill. (laughs) So just real quick, a reminder of the six player types that Robin Laws identified, the power gamer, the butt kicker, the tactician, the specialist, the method actor, storyteller, and casual gamer. So there's some key parameters that influence the play experience, whether online or in person. First one is interface inputs. That's, uh, you know, are you using a virtual tabletop? Yeah, is this a play-by-post? Is this, um, you know, played through Discord? You know, do you have any type of interface at all? Is it just chat? You know, those kinds of things. Uh, On the phone. Like uh, like I used to do uh, back in high school. We played Magic the Gathering over the phone and just trusted each other. Play by email. It's fine. <laughs> okay. God. Play by a uh, bottle thrown into the ocean. Oh, <laughs> you don't know who you're playing with. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's the GM. Uh, you might also have communication limitations, right? So famously in Zoom calls, you know, you can't really easily have multiple speakers. Uh, crosstalk becomes a big problem that nobody can understand anybody. 
uh, you get all of your normal technology snafus that can become challenges. Lag. Yeah, dropping, video freezing, I can't hear you, I'm on mute, hey, get off mute, that stuff. Yeah, one player refuses to buy a webcam because he doesn't <laughs> like the way that his hair looks, and so he's decided that nobody needs to see him, even though it makes it more complicated. Another player refuses to buy a headset, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> even though everyone has said, we will buy you a headset, right. we'll mail to you right now. <laughs> it's only been eight weeks. <laughs> and then, of course, there's also the aspect of like physical presence, right? There is a there's that sort of like social camaraderie that comes from being in the same physical place that gets lost by being actually remote, right? I think everybody's experiencing that with remote work right now. It's just as true in gaming. Something that just gets lost, like my motivation. <laughs> or my willingness to shower. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first up, let's talk about the power gamer. Uh, brief recap, they want to make their character bigger, tougher, buffer, richer. Um, their success is defined by the rule system that they use, and they want to be as successful as possible. They tend to see their PC as an abstraction, not really necessarily a character with goals and motivations. They're just um, a tool for them to express their own goals and motivations, which is winning at the game. Yeah, like they're, they're your you know, player who's looking for the breakpoints in the rule system, the weaknesses, the exploits, right? Trying to get as powerful as possible. I just don't understand those kinds of people. <laughs> I have nothing in common with any of them. Same. Great. <laughs> so I think when you bring the power gamer online, in a lot of ways, the game is still the game. The rules are the rules. The, the joy of those exploits are still there for the power gamer. There's no reason the power gamer can't build the broken character that they're looking for. Yeah, I think even sometimes you may have more of an opportunity. Like, okay, you, you can't like pick up the massive fistful of dice so everyone can see your, you know, 43d6 sneak attack. But in the online die roller, everyone sees like, you know, 19 dice roll and it takes up half the screen and it's still like kind of impressive, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The flex of your power is going to be different <laughs> for the power gamer, right? If you are a power gamer who doesn't really focus all that much on, you know, character motivations and, and role play, then online play can actually be a bit of a reprieve because, you know, at least early on, I think a lot of people are having more trouble um, leaning into the role play aspects of, of the game and sort of are focusing on the mechanical minutiae because those are the things that we need to get up to speed. I uh, need to figure out how to how to use like how, how is the map operating? Um, how are we rolling the dice and, and all that sort of thing? I think as a player type, power gamers tend to be more focused on the things on their sheet more so than what's going on around them. So the friction that comes from playing online with that kind of interaction is going to impact them less. Yeah, but they might end up impacting the party more. One of the issues with a power gamer at any table is that they can slow down gameplay because they have so many different abilities and they need to roll so many dice. And in an online scenario, this can take even longer, especially if people aren't necessarily uh, familiar with all of the tools that they're using. Yeah. So I have five different things I need to track and, oh, the sheet doesn't quite show it because I have bonuses to you know these circumstances and i don't know where to write them down but hold on a second i i was sure that i had a plus one over here let me just look up this feat give me one second a power gamer really needs to have all their ducks in a row in order to play well online yeah yeah that rules lawyering tendency can be a liability um in a way that maybe you can brush past a little easier if you're in person and you can kind of read body language and, and sort of 
more easily like move forward and then catch back up you know because the the problem we run into is only one person can really speak at a time um so when you have that spotlight like it kind of needs to stay on you until you're complete yeah and the power gamer is already having issues with remembering not to hog the spotlight so you know make keyboard shortcuts uh type out your long die roll formulas before you need them so you can just copy paste them right into the die roller and actually that's much faster than you rolling 17 dice and counting them up one by one because for some reason that seems to be a power gamer thing as well yeah if you're in it to win it then if you're not rolling in a public space on a on a roller if you're you know just rolling on your own table and everyone's on the honor system is the power gamer now fudging their die rolls i mean this is kind of a violation of the social contract anyway but if i had to pick a player type who is most at risk of pulling it it'd be the power gamer all right so let's talk about the butt kicker adjacent to the power gamer <laughs> uh well the power gamer but simplified <laughs> like, the power gamers i want to win in whatever form this rule system defines winning the butt kicker is i want to fight things regardless of what this rule system is intended to accomplish <laughs> and I want to be super cool when I do it. Like this is the uh, reminder, you know, the butt kicker is just wanting to fight, right? Like it's the way to blow off some steam is to clobber some cobalts, right? And just get on with it. They might care about the rules to be good at fighting. They might just want somebody who has a big axe and whatever they're doing and can take a swing. So they're going to be less impacted by the actual interface that you're playing on. Mainly, they're just here because they want to smash things. They want to hit things with a big axe, do a bunch of damage. You don't need a grid in order to smash the biggest monster's face. You don't need the nuance of like the perfect gridded mini combat. Like You don't necessarily care if your virtual tabletop experience is super real-to-life and tactically accurate or if you switch to theater of the mind. I'm here to imagine myself with a big axe swinging at that orc. Yeah. And hopefully winning. Yeah, you don't need to have a good internet connection to type out, I attack the fire giant king. Right. <laughs> I, I think where the interface can get in the way, though, is when you have problems with it that are slowing down combats. That can be frustrating, right? And, and I'm not saying, like, there's a bug with roll 20 or, you know, Astral Tabletop doesn't do this. I'm saying, like, how do I roll my attack? Hey, how do I move my mini? Hey, I like it's taking us 10 minutes to set up initiative. Like, hey, whose turn is it? Oh, it's my turn. Actually, it's their turn. The turn order is wrong. We need to like, right? Like that sort of stuff that goes on. When your thing is combat, anything that takes away from the momentum of combat kind of ruins your experience. I think one other thing that can happen too is so many of us are doing Zoom calls for work and then you're just jumping into another Zoom call for your game. It can be there's less of a relief, mm -hmm. right? You're not like physically leaving the office and then coming to somebody's house and, and sitting down. So it almost can feel like the same mindset and it's you might be a little more combative uh, or still a little stressed out. It may not feel like as, uh, as calming or as fun. So just try to separate emotionally first and get into a gaming mindset. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. That's, that's kind of key to the butt kicker, right? It's like you have an office job I don't get to kill orcs on my, my like in my job. I would like to do that in my spare time. I should have picked a different college major. Right. <laughs> time for a lateral move, maybe. And then also keep in mind that pace of play issues can be troublesome for butt kickers. They kind of have a, a reputation for tuning out a bit when you're not in combat. 
And if your online version of your gameplay is slower between combats because one person speaking at a time and, and the need to kind of like regulate that piece of it, you might be testing their attention span, especially like you said, coming from a Zoom call for work, hopping directly on my Zoom call for game. I'm not quite getting it. Especially if you're in a group that has switched mostly to talk RP because you don't need to worry about the fiddly bits of a virtual tabletop system. You All you need is like, you know, that Zoom call or Discord chat or whatever, um, and you just talk out theater of the mind and an entire session. The butt kicker may be sitting here going, why did I log on today? Right. You know, every time someone cuts in with a joke or, or whatever, the normal kinds of crosstalk that happen at a table, hey, you know, the power gamers like, look at my cool thing that I can do or what feat should I take or whatever, that slows everything down because only one thing's happening at a time. So let's talk about the tactician. The tactician is the player type who wants to solve like complex, realistic military problems, right? He wants to understand the rules, be able to interpret them, um, and, and solve each combat like a puzzle. Yeah, like the previous two personality types, they may view issues of characterization as a distraction. There's really one thing I'm here to do. It's solve some problems. It's uh, I'm here to dig a, a trench under the Euphrates and, um, you know, de divert the river so that we can uh, invade the city. OK, like I don't I don't know why we're spending all this time on your feelings. <laughs> that, that example actually touches uh, on a good good thing to keep in mind regarding your interface like the interface that you're using is going to be important right like if you're in something that is kind of more narratively oriented uh, more theater of the mind oriented like you're probably fine for the tactician right like as long as your rule system can support diverting the euphrates to you know starve out uh during the siege great if however you're dependent on a grid it's going to be super important to find the virtual tabletop and as the GM, get all of that set up, make sure it's working smoothly, make sure that it's representative of your challenge, right? Like to really recreate that tactical experience for them, because that's the only thing they're here for. Right. It's sort of a, a matter of scale, right? If, if you're looking at the map from the level of like a game of risk, then Theater of the Mind probably works great. But if this is a tactician who particularly loves the five foot steps of something like fourth edition and, you know, the, the minutia of maneuvering around in the, the scrum of combat, and that is the tactical play that they like, you really need to make sure that you have a good virtual tabletop. When we ran Stream of Blades, right, and I, I don't think we had a particularly like tactician oriented player uh, in our group, but running Band of Blades, which is largely narrative right not meant to be gridded even like outside of combat though like the tactical uh, somewhat sort of strategic element of like the campaign phase you need to know all those fiddly bits like everybody needs to have their ducks in a row and be and know how to like track everything that's going there for that to work for the tactician because that's another problem to solve in like sort of that military mindset right so it's not just the grid it's also like all the pieces that fit in around it to solve that problem like you said like a game of risk and then there's the increased chance that the issues you run into with a tactician at the table are exacerbated you know you have too much conversation about what is the strategy going to be how are we making the approach are we sure that we've accounted for every possible thing that could go wrong 
That can sometimes drag out at a regular table, but online, again, only the tactician is going to be able to talk or only, you know, one person and the tactician, maybe the GM, maybe another player who likes to strategize as well. And that means they're monopolizing the entire conversation for a much larger chunk of the game content. Yeah, and I think where that runs into an issue is like, it's great to have tactical discussions between players. Like as the GM, you love that. But it's also very easy at a normal table to interject to provide information they need. It's tougher to do that as the GM online because, again, like one person gets cut off if somebody else is speaking. So just the act of interjecting is more difficult. And at a table, even a person who's not necessarily tactically minded sometimes jumps in with like a really cool idea. They're much less likely to do that online. So if you are a tactician, maybe make sure that you are at least trying to get input from other players. Uh, And another thing you can do here is have a lot of these discussions online in between sessions like if you're on a discord or email or whatever talk about what the approach is going to be have as much detail as you possibly want and then at the beginning of the session people can just uh, like sign off on it yeah all right next up is the specialist this is someone who favors a particular character type and they play it pretty much in every campaign no matter the setting no matter the game system this is uh, Shane and uh, the card shark. <laughs> That's I'm not even. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> the personality of the card shark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. You like to play a ninja every time, or knights, or mischief makers, or people who fly. Um, I'm kind of becoming the druid guy. Weirdly, I don't know how that happened, but hey, here we are. Yeah, I really don't understand how that happened. <laughs> I played the druid. I'm good. <laughs> That's also why I reject the card shark. <laughs> the specialist is looking for rules that support whatever it is that their thing is and otherwise doesn't particularly care. So if they really care about playing a cat person in every game, like they just need to make sure they have that. Well, yeah, that's why I'm a druid. So I can be a cat yeah, every okay. time. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I think with with specialists like as well as your system goes online so goes the specialist with it if you can play it online effectively and it supports their specialty you're in good shape i don't think there's anything special about online play that really is going to ruin their day as long as they have their chance to do the thing in the story that their specialist is meant to do the thing that might ruin the gm's day is if that doesn't exist and now the specialist wants some sort of uh, wacky homebrew right Uh, Because it can be difficult to get that working if your tools don't natively support it. Normally, you know, you homebrew something, you write it on your sheet, it looks a little different, and nobody really cares because at the end of the day, the number is right. But if you're not playing off of paper, your virtual tabletop needs all the numbers into the sheet, and you don't have a place to put that, like, you can end up with a big challenge trying to play some specialties, especially when you've had to adapt. You knew that I always play a blood hunter in every game when you invited me into this group, okay? It's really your <laughs> fault. You get people who um, really really need to play a very specific type of character. Uh, so, you know, they're digging through, you know, Unearthed Arcana, um, things on the DMs Guild, and often those things are not going to be available in the the tabletops that uh, you're using initially, especially not like as part of the stock features, you know, so you basically need to build it from scratch. Yeah. I mean, we build some pretty crazy characters and stick them in D&D Beyond, but they still require a lot of customization. Yeah. A lot of times we are creating magic items (laughs) in order to add things just because that is a flexible place to do it. As long as you can get the ability on the sheet, it more or less makes the math work. That would not be as simple to do if we were 
playing like a Powered by the Apocalypse game, right? Or, or especially a game where you share character sheets or something like that. Mm-hmm. All right, next up is the Method Actor, who believes that role-playing is a medium for personal expression, and they very strongly identify with a particular character that they're playing. This is going to be the player who wants to role-play a lot and wants to get into the like kind of interpersonal role-play that is like core to these narratives. And that's tough when only one person can speak at a time and everybody else has to patiently listen. (laughs) Yeah, this is kind of counterintuitive, right? Because all you need is a connection where everybody's online and you can role play as much as you want and, you know, talk through the entire session. But it's harder for that one person to keep from monopolizing the entire session uh especially you know they usually are picking the face character right so right now uh we have parlay or we have uh persuasion or we have a, an audience uh with royalty i'm the one who takes center stage but if that becomes the vast majority of the entire session or all of your sessions now because you're moving away from virtual tabletop you have one person who's shouldering the entire burden but also hogging the whole spotlight Role-playing is sort of an improvised acting exercise, and a big part of that is the social cue and body language that you read off of the players that you're playing with. You can lose that very easily in an online medium. It's more difficult, it's less rewarding, like it feels more rote than inspired. It just changes that experience for the same reason that improv groups perform on stage. They tend not to perform on live live stream via webcam. However, If you have a group where, you know, you have two or three characters who are very invested in this and you have a group that really likes to have this kind of method acting role play played out in long form, like this can actually be a huge enhancement. (laughs) Like now you don't have interruption as a risk of, of derailing a scene. I think we are in a space where, you know, our streamed games, but even in our home game now, which which we're playing online, people have more of a chance to go into character monologues there's a lot of monologuing yeah (laughs) less dialogue (laughs) (laughs) but it it can be nice because you know we we didn't have a snarky group anyway who sort of interrupts uh either with an in-game or out-of-game joke and that is happening a bit less which does let somebody sort of dive a bit more into their particular character i don't know that we have any method actors in our particular group though no no, I think some of us flex in the method actor <laughs> as needed for streams. <laughs> but in big groups, you can't really separate into smaller groups like you might do at a table. Uh, and so it's it's very difficult to get that dynamic that facilitates multiple people being able to really get into the personality of their character at the same time. So one thing that can be helpful here is setting up a protocol for the sort of off-camera side discussion, right? We haven't really talked about like an out-of-character chat or anything like that, but um, if you can set that up as uh, on the side, you can help with some of the need for interruption, some of the interjection. Um, you can give them a place where, you know, I can kind of make in-character decisions off-camera so that I can inform the role play and lo- and maybe like, streamline it a little bit all right next up the storyteller adjacent to the method actor uh, they're more inclined toward role play less interested in numbers but they want to take part in a fun narrative probably reminds them of some sort of content that they've seen before a book a movie uh, a video game 
they're less interested in verisimilitude. What they really want is like the next cool plot point. So if they need to cut something short or truncate it just to move on to get to the cool thing or the set piece or to find out more information, they're perfectly happy with that. Storytellers often have a desire to have like a meta narrative conversation as well. My character needs to make a decision, but I as a player want it to advance the narrative as best possible. Like I want to talk to the players about that, right? Like what direction should my character take us as a group? Whereas like the method actor would say, oh, my character would do this, so I will say this. Having that kind of decision making on like a Zoom call is very hard because it requires a lot of input from a lot of people in order to ultimately make a simple decision. You can run into pacing challenges with that. Mm -hmm. That ultimately undermines their own play, right? Because that narrative momentum is important to storytellers. However, it can be easier for people to actually pick out the narrative and maybe stay focused and on plot because there's really only one person talking at a time. So the GM is explaining and now people aren't distracted with looking at their phones or crosstalk or something like that. People might actually hear all the plot points. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess if you're not playing a, a Discord video game <laughs> when it's not your turn. Watching a Twitch stream. Right. So the other piece of pace of play to keep in mind is like pay attention to what your combat in this medium is costing because um, a lot of times combats are not narratively important to storytellers but they can still take a huge chunk of time um, and so an unimportant combat that's necessary to like make the tactician or the butt kicker or the power gamer get their piece of of the gameplay satisfied can take a lot of time away that's taxing for the storyteller. For GMs here, you want to make sure that you are including, you know, alternative combat object objectives or making sure that the storyteller understands why this combat is necessary and maybe even looking forward to it because of the way that it advances the plot, right? It's not, we will succeed and kill them or we will fail and we will die and the story ends. The way that the combat unfolds itself should affect the story. All right, so now we're going to talk about the casual gamer, which is sometimes the player who doesn't seem like they should be there because <laughs> it's not really their focus. Yeah, and, you know, actually maybe dropping off at this point because it's more difficult or like, why are you sitting here for two to four hours online when you actually could just be playing a Discord video game? A lot of time the casual gamer is there for social reasons because they're friends with the group, they're friends with somebody in the group, they got invited and wanted to be a part of it. They already live there. <laughs> right. Like, But the activity itself of playing a role-playing game is not the main draw for them. That can be really difficult when you now take away a lot of the social aspect of gaming that was previously their purpose for being there. Right. So keep in mind that like, by definition... The game isn't the primary thing that they're concerned about. Um, it is more difficult to socialize online, and it's even more difficult during a game because from their perspective, everyone else is distracted. Right. <laughs> so if you don't lose them entirely, right, which is obviously a thing is you just lose the player, you might find that casual players are actively doing other things during the game. There's no social pressure that prevents them from whipping out their switch and playing Animal Crossing during your two-hour combat. There's no other people at the table glaring at them. There's just the webcam. There's nothing they can really do to stop them. Right, or maybe there's no webcam. I mean, that's why you have to track, um, you have to turn on uh, attention tracking, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's really the most important tool that a GM can use these days. <laughs> your GM and your corporate overlords. <laughs> so it's important to get in socializing. And this isn't just for the casual gamer. This is for everyone at the table. Like, 
you come together as a table partly for the camaraderie and the vast majority of tables are going to eventually become friends in some capacity or another. So make sure that you're building that time into the game, whether that's, you know, time up front just to like catch up on the week, crack jokes, figure out what's going on, fill in the people who weren't there last time, or, you know, bathroom breaks or dinner breaks or or things like that, or, or time at the end just to like debrief and, and like, you know, relive what went well. And then the other thing that can really help here is that add a character chat, right? An option that doesn't slow down gameplay, but gives them a place to be engaged in the main thing that they like about the gaming group, which is the fun, the jokes, the camaraderie, the socialization. So if there's a place where they can just politely type uh, without necessarily having to distract other players from playing, like maybe you can keep them more engaged. You want to keep crosstalk to a minimum anyway, so make sure there's some sort of text chat just so people can drop in wacky links or make a, a quick joke about something that someone else just said that people have open and can can respond to without derailing the conversation. So I think as we wrap this up, I uh, want to kind of conclude with just the thought that online games are different, but they're different by like degrees. It's still ultimately the same activity. Players are still players. It's really just about giving a little more care and thought to the way that things play out and are performed versus completely changing your approach, completely changing your games. You know, as gaming online continues into the foreseeable future, everyone's going to get better at it and you're going to fall into, you know, new habits and and figure out how all of this works for you and the particular people in your group. I really like uh, gaming in my pajamas. The only time we get to do that is uh, Thrillicon. <laughs> or Gen Con? Uh, sometimes, yeah, I mean... you're not wrong. <laughs> Those 2 a.m. games back at the uh, very crowded Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people just wear their pajamas at Gen Con anyway. I don't know. I thought that was cosplay. I was wrong. <laughs> All right, do you hear that, Ishan? That's the sound of the Airbnb uh, toilet flushing yet again in the middle of the night i'm not sure why but i think someone's been eating at too many food trucks all right <laughs> I, guess, I miss gen con <laughs> i guess it's time to move on to the character creation forge but before we do that let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us we do love hearing from you you can tweet at shane at mundangerous that's m-u-n dangerous and you can tweet at ishan at evil sans carne that's malice minus meat and you can tweet at the show at tpt cast you can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. I'm Lisa Chen, and I host Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games. There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one -on -one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Beholder share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found, or visit BeholdHerPodcast.com. So this week in the Character Creation Forge... We continue anime with L. Okay. 
Shane, you thought this was a typo. I did think it was a typo. <laughs> what's so what's L- the rest of the name? <laughs> That's it, L. I think he has a last name. Is this, I don't remember what it is. Is this like a uh, Men in Black situation? Uh, yeah, a bit. It's a nom de guerre. Cool. <laughs> so L is, uh, depending on your perspective, the antagonist or the protagonist of the anime Death Note. He is the world's greatest detective. Um, except that, I don't know, I guess in a Sherlock Holmesian type way, he is cunning, uh, ruthless, and he has terrible social skills. Um, he sort of sits crouched, kind of like a frog. He's usually barefoot. He bites his fingernails, never really goes outside, uh, except maybe to do some detective work, but then he's undercover in that nobody actually knows who he is. I don't think you ever discover his actual real name ever in the entire series. Part of the reason for this is because he is up against someone who can kill people as long as they know their uh, name and know what their face looks like. Staying uh, undercover is uh, basically his best protection. That is an extremely arbitrary win condition. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're not here to critique anime. We're here to build <laughs> characters. So Are we not? Are we not? <laughs> well, look, I, I can't help it. <laughs> All right, it is Inquisitive Rogue 13, Open Hand Monk 7. So from Rogue, 76 Sneak Attack. For expertises, we are, of course, taking Perception, Investigation, Insight, and then L lies all the time and is very good at it, so we're taking Deception. You will also, of course, get the Rogue Goodies, Cunning Action, Uncanny Dodge, Evasion, giving you lots of damage mitigation and movement. And Reliable Talent makes sure that even when you screw up, you don't screw up. Now, from Inquisitive, you get Ear for Deceit, which means uh, you're at minimum rolling an 8 for insight checks. You can tell when people are lying. Uh, Eye for Detail lets you make investigation and perception checks as a bonus action. You can do it on the move. Um, You can do it casually in the middle of combat. And Insightful Fighting means that uh, with a high enough insight check, you'll always be able to get your sneak attack damage in. You will also have advantage on perception and investigation checks and the ability to see through illusions. Which is helpful if you're up against a supernatural opponent when you yourself have absolutely no supernatural abilities. You would think that an opponent who needs to see your face and know your name would be able to see through illusions too. Uh, oh, well, I mean, they're hanging out with a Shinigami, so maybe. All right, so... L uh, has a weird diet, uh, eats only sweet things, sugary things. However, strangely, oddly, I mean, this is anime, uh, is pretty athletic and trained in capoeira. Honestly, same. (laughs) From Monk, you get unarmed combat, wisdom to AC, flurry of blows, extra attack, fast movement, deflect arrows, and slow fall. You will also get the super handy ability, stunning strike, uh, which allows you to stun a target. Uh, or on a hit, you can stun a target by forcing a wisdom save. You'll also get stillness of mind. Yeah, it allows you to shake off some of those uh, conditions that might otherwise keep you from solving a mystery. Uh, and then you can also uh, push people, knock them prone, uh, take away their reactions. And then uh, wholeness of body will give you a bit of self-healing, which is, I don't know, probably how L keeps functioning after eating all those sugary foods and basically nothing else. So for leveling order, uh, let's start Rogue 4 to get an ASI, Monk 2 to get uh, some key. Take Rogue to 12 to uh, get Reliable Talent and that uh, last ASI, then Monk 7 and finish out Rogue. All right, Ishan, so who is your L? My L is a member of 
a strange order of monks. Uh, they are not out for physical perfection. They are not out for enlightenment. They are out to seek the truth about reality. And one way they do that is by seeing to the heart of things. Um, they perceive strongly. Uh, they they uh, can tell the truth in people's words. And in order to, you know, stay afloat, uh, fund the monastery, right? Uh, there are still earthly needs that need to be met in the meantime on the, the path on that journey. Uh, they train and send out detectives, Uh People who uh, have no attachments uh, to the world uh, other than to the monastery, um, but you know they are highly regarded, highly sought after, and highly paid uh, because they you know travel uh, to wherever they are called, uh, quickly solve uh, whatever cases laid before them, and then perhaps even bring in or uh, terminate the perpetrator, and then just as quickly disappear and return from where they came. So Mael is one of these monks who has uh, journeyed far away from home uh, and has, uh, in the process of trying to track down a criminal, either discovered a larger conspiracy or has teamed up with an adventuring party uh, because she understands that this is the best way to track down her quarry. Interesting. So kind of a Sherlock, a, a Sherlock Holmes for rent, if you will. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. An itinerant Sherlock Holmes for rent. Okay. <laughs> what about your L? In the world of, uh, say, Forgotten Realms, you might put your insurance on a ship. But if you want real insurance, you have to go someplace a little, you know, you might go to a moneylender, you might go to a financier. But ultimately, if you want the best insurance in the world, one held by an, uh, an ironclad, blood-bound contract, you go to the Infernal. So my L, uh, actually L stands for loss investigation. Not Lucifer? <laughs> no, 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 of course not. <laughs> my L is simply uh, one who is sent out by the infernal insurers to assess whether or not a contract was, uh, you know, upheld. Uh, you know, oh, you you want to make an infernal insurance claim? Well, yeah, sure. Like, let me just send out my uh, assessor to ensure that all of your building was up to code, that your ship was properly maintained, that all of your records are in order. And if you want to get fresh with L, well, L will be happy to put you in your place. Uh, so I think what L is out to do, or was trained to do, was to investigate these types of incidents, make sure that you know, no devils were paying out contracts that weren't due. Uh, look for any way to exclude people. But uh, once my L got out of the business, is now kind of freelancing on behalf of policyholders, ensuring that they get every dollar that they're worth, every gold piece that they're owed in their insurance contracts. So kind of the opposite of your friendly neighborhood State Farm adjuster. Uh, well, yeah. You know, that you play, they play the jingle, do 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 do, and then they appear, but they're not here to help. <laughs> Well, no, no, no. My, I'm here to help. Yeah, no, I am the State Farm adjuster, except like as played in the commercial, not played in real life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And of course, if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, we will read it on the air. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about airships. And in the character creation forge? We're building Spike Spiegel. 
Well, that's it for episode 251 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.